WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is Impact's one-hour discussion of news, events, and organizations within MSU's community. And now, this week's Exposure. Hello everybody, it's me, Stephanie, your host of Exposure, and today we have Spartan Support Network in. They are very excited to tell us what they do and about all of their events today, so I would, I'm honored to introduce them to you. Uh, I'm Megan, I'm a senior in James Madison, and I'm the executive director of Spartan Support Network. I'm Jonah, I'm a senior also graduating this year. I'm a business major, human resource management, and I'm director of operations and business development. Hi, my name's Nicole, I'm a junior, and I'm a majoring in neuroscience, and I am the director of marketing. Wow, those are completely different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I guess that goes to show the diversity that you can have in any volunteer group here. So do you guys want to start by explaining what Spartan Support Network is for those of people that do not know who it is? Yeah, so Spartan Support Network, essentially we're a peer-led support group on campus. Each week we have roughly five to seven group sessions going on each week. Each group session is led by student facilitators, and these student facilitators are trained um, by CAPS, which is the Counseling and Psychiatric Services. Um, we work with them a lot to be able to know the ins and outs of mental health and being able to detect certain signs of possible, you know, suicidal ideation and being able to see, you know, if someone in your group session may have signs of depression, our student facilitators are able to detect that and work with that and conduct and facilitate a great conversation. And essentially, it's an inclusive environment for people to be able to talk about mental health because, of course, you know, there's a stigma against talking about your mental health and talking about, you know, if you're depressed. So, Having an open environment for students to be able to talk about this is a really great way to destigmatize mental health, and also it's an incredible way to make new friends. You know, we have a lot of people coming in with not knowing many people on campus, but coming out of it, they know so many people, and it's really awesome. For sure. I definitely think it's important for people to talk about how they're feeling, and having supporters of mental health is very important in on campus as well as anywhere in life. So do you guys want to talk about how it got started? Uh, yeah, the group actually just started up last year, so we're only in our second year right now. Um, it's sort of an offshoot of Wolverine Support Network. The whole organization started at University of Michigan, and they brought it here. Um, and so, yeah, we've just been working to sort of gain membership and sort of start more conversations about mental health on campus. If you guys don't mind sharing, do you want to talk about why you guys joined Spartan Support Network? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I personally don't have any diagnosed mental illnesses, but a lot of people I love very dearly do, especially my little brother. Um, he has very severe depression and anxiety, and it sort of just opened my eyes to how important mental health is. I mean, even if you don't have a mental illness, everyone has mental health, and everyone needs to take care of their mental health. Um, but you can't do that if you don't talk about it. Yeah, for me personally, my brother actually was involved with Wolverine Support Network at University of Michigan, and he told me once they were coming over to Michigan State to get involved, and right away I knew that I wanted to get involved. And I started as a facilitator, a student leader that we call, and since I've been involved, I've just loved the impact that I, I can genuinely have on people and actually making an actual impact on campus and really making a change of the environment about mental health and Really, again, like being able just to create new friends and seeing other people have new friends with our student organization that we're running is just one of the greatest things. And above that, to know that the work that we're putting in right now is going to be going on for years to come, that we're setting the foundation right now, it's a very heartwarming thing. And it's a lot. It's very motivating and it's just a great time. Uh, yeah, kind of piggybacking off Megan, um, I don't necessarily have any mental health disorders, but like she said, no one's mental health is perfect. And that's what really drew me to this organization because I like to take care of my mental health just like everyone else does. And um, I have some friends in the past who have had mental health issues and even referring them to Spartan Support Network, I've seen changes. And that's amazing Like that this organization can do so. So I just think that this organization allows people to create a community with one another. And that's one of the reasons I joined because it's a great community for everyone. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I think that mental health is a very important thing. Um, me personally, I've had a friend that committed suicide in high school, so that's always been a important topic for me to help support. So I'm so glad we got to talk to you guys about all of this. Um, but with that, how do you think being mental health is such an important issue that you can remain sensitive to it, but also supporting people that affect it, especially as your group? Uh, I think a lot of it is just sort of being intentional about the language you use. Um, making sure that you validate others' experiences and also make sure not to dismiss them. Like, being tidy is not the same as having OCD. Uh, just because you're sad doesn't mean you have depression. So sort of knowing, like, knowing your place, knowing that everyone is trying their best, um, even if it may not look like it to you. Um, because we all want to succeed. We all want to do well in life. Uh, people just have different circumstances and different ways of getting there. Yeah, I think one of the most important things is making sure that people understand that their voice is heard. And not only that their voice is heard, but they're not alone. And that it's not even that they're not alone. It's that most people are dealing with such similar things. Of course, no one's going through the same exact type of situation. You never can know exactly what someone's going through. But there's a lot of similar stresses that come with college and that come with this type of environment that we're in on campus. So just knowing that there's so many people going through so many different things that are similar, it's a good way just for people to know that there is that community that has that basis of connection. It also allows um, people within our group to understand like it's okay to not be okay and none of us are 100% okay and I love that our community like emphasizes that and understands that like not everyone's going to be 100% happy or sad or vice versa but it's okay to express our feelings and emotions with one another. So what are your meetings look like? Uh, yeah um, so well, we have our director meetings, and that's where we do all the internal, you know, operation type of stuff that just gets the groundwork going and running. But when we have our leader, actually, I'll go to our group session uh, to show what that's like. Um, so our group sessions, which consist of our student facilitators and then the group members, which is, it's up to a dozen group uh, members, which are just students on campus. And essentially, it's just a, a, a place where people, t they talk about life, and you know, a lot of groups sometimes start off by talking about the good things and the bad things that have happened in their week. Actually, we have a thing that's called rose, roses, thorns, and buds. Um, a rose in your week would be something good that happened. A bud is something that you're hopeful for and you're looking forward to. And then a the thorn is something that wasn't so good. It's a negative part of your week or past month or something. Oh, so. I really love that because I've heard of roses and thorns but never buds, and it's always good to have something to look forward to. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. It really, and the, that itself really opens up the dialogue for, uh, you know, that deeper type of conversation that makes someone almost vulnerable. Um, and when someone opens up, and even when a student facilitator opens up their own vulnerability, the group members then see, oh, this, this student facilitator also, you know, possibly going through depression, me too, and then they can, they're able to connect on that, and they're talking more about that and more specific details of you know their own symptoms and things like that. So, it's just a really great way to just get that dialogue going. There's no like one thing that a meeting looks like. A lot of times, it does revolve around you know mental health and any stressors people have in their lives. Um, but last year, I had a group. One day, we drove to Mount Pleasant to go to a really specific taco place. <laughs> and that was our group meeting for the week. And we talk about things, you know, well, one time we drew our family trees on the board. Like, it's just, it's whatever you want to talk about. You can talk about the good. You can talk about the bad. Or just, like, really anything that's happened to you in your life. It's a place of just, like, unconditional support and help. And one other thing, actually, that we didn't really touch on, which is really important, is that, of course, we're open to for students on campus who are struggling with their mental health but it's really important to know that we're incredibly open for people who don't have any issues with mental health as well. So if you think that you know you're, everything's perfectly fine in your life, still come join Spartan Support Network because it's still a great way to make new friends. And you know you can tell people about how you're living your lifestyle and possibly motivate people and you know teach them your ways of you know a healthy lifestyle. Do you guys have like set topics you'll talk about each week, or is it just kind of whatever you think is appropriate? It's whatever you think is appropriate. Um, you know, leaders can come in with some topics if they want to talk about it. Um, I was a leader last year, and sometimes we'd come and talk about, like, suicide or, like, how to tell if one of your friends is going through something. But it's kind of just up to the discretion of the whole group, and I really like that about that. It's very fluid. You can kind of just do whatever you want, how you feel, and it's just a great environment. So what is the role of a facilitator or a leader in your group? Um, well, 
our facilitators, the, uh, the leaders, they we have weekly meetings where we sort of train them and prep them just to know how to respond to certain situations and just be generally very informed about mental health. And their role in the weekly groups is to, I mean, it can be to sort of guide discussion, um, make sure it's on like a good path. And just in case there are any issues, if anyone has anything, they can sort of just like offer offer any support. Um, if there's any conflict, they have things going on in their lives. It's sort of just someone who's there in case people need them. But I know when I was a leader, it was, I mean, it was pretty much just like a group of friends. I didn't feel like I had any authoritative position. Um, and so, yeah, they're sort of just there just in case anyone needs anything. Yeah, and one thing we always uh, put out there is that our student facilitators or leaders, like we call them, they're not professionals. Um, you know, they're not psychiatrists, psychologists. You know, they're just regular students who have a further training on these topics, but it's just, to, like Megan said, just to facilitate the conversation and make sure it's going in the right direction. It's definitely very important to have people that are more aware of what they're doing. Um, what is one of the biggest influences you've seen your group have? Um, honestly, just the friends people have made in that group. Um, like even people who've graduated, we we're only in our second year, but someone who graduated last year, we we still talk to him regularly. We. You know, even though we're sort of doing different things now, some people are still in groups. Um, I'm not in the group anymore, but we still have a group chat. It's still absolutely hopping. I love it. <laughs> and so it's just you can see and like you can see the people hanging out outside of group, like hanging out to get dinner or something one night. And it's it feels really good to know that we have been able to like impact people's lives like this and give them positivity. Creating a network. Yeah. <laughs> Support network. <laughs> That has Spartan support network. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, though, what is your guys' hope for the future? How do you see this growing? Yeah, um, so we really see uh, our future in the, in the long run. We really see us being able to be on campus for really years and years to come. And what that would entail is, you know, and if we want to look at the numbers, too, like we would hope we're hopeful for, you know, there to be hundreds of students being involved with the student organization. So that would be dozens of groups going on each week. And that's just hundreds of more friends being made and that's more connections being made on campus. So essentially what the way we see it is we see not only us connecting students on campus, but of course, improving the mental health overall in, on, in East Lansing on campus, making everyone feel comfortable and open to talk about it. Not even in group sessions, but feel open to talk about it with their friends, you know, just on the weekend, just hanging out, you know, at their house or whatever. So it's really in so many ways we see such a positive impact in what we can do in the future. How do you guys encourage people to talk about what they're going through? Because sometimes it is very difficult to be open up about all of the things that are going on in your life. So how do you encourage people in your groups, or I guess outside of your groups, to talk about what's going on? Yeah, so I, w I wouldn't even think of us um, as for us to encourage them. It's almost, like I said before, uh, a leader would uh, show their vulnerability, and they're showing that they're able to talk about this. And we're not directly encouraging them. I think they just feel influenced by the facilitator's actions. Um, of course, there are, um, you know, one thing we always uh, stress is that, you know, we never can tell someone the right choice, like the right way to make a decision based off a certain experience because everyone has different coping mechanisms. You know, there's no black and white right answer. So um, really the way we encourage just by our actions and, and leading by example and just showing that, inclusive environment by the way we talk about things um yeah so it's a really good way like that so with topics like this sometimes there are people that are mandatory reported since you guys are a student group i'm assuming that is not a part of your guys's realm at all or is it uh no it's not and we've been working uh, we were originally part of asmsu but then just having things where we would then be mandatory reporters we ended up leaving um and so we've been working with the university to ensure that while any leaders or anyone is in the role of a leader, they are not a mandatory reporter. Yeah, what, we like to say, you know, what happens in these group sessions stays in the group sessions. We're not going to be going off telling people, uh, you know, what so-and-so was talking about. We really keep it confidential. 
For sure. And with that, do you guys have partners that help you be this support network and help encourage people within their mental health? If they are struggling, where do you put them to or if there are people that you work directly with? So we work with CAPS. Um, we use CAPS as like resources. So we also provide our leaders with a list of resources to give our members if something were to happen or what, you know, lots of circumstances. But CAPS is our main go-to if something is in the deep end that we're unsure of what to do. Yeah, our, we have a direct relationship with CAPS that has really been tremendous. You know, they, they already do so much work on campus helping with mental health outside of the support network. And now they're helping us really get off the ground and uh, really be more trained. And like, like Nicole said, just knowing how to give the resources and what resources to give these students. Do you guys want to talk about what your best experience has been being a part of this group? Sure. I'll go first. Um, I think one of the best experiences for me is, so one of my jobs is to plan um, the social events and just seeing how excited people get to go to these social events, even when they're like not super elaborate. Like for instance, we went to um, a corn maze and like, oh, that's super fun. But like the excitement people got from being like, oh my gosh, Spartan Support Network, we're going to a corn maze all together. And just seeing that those relationships are still there like now, and that was like back in October, is so rewarding to me. Like, I just love it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I really love just sort of the connections I've made with people who I would not otherwise have been able to meet. Like like I said, I'm in James Madison. You know, it's a residential college. That's I spend most of my time in Case Hall with other people in Madison. But I think I'm the only person in Madison in this whole organization or, like, one of a few. So it's just great being able to meet people from other colleges, other experiences. It's just really exciting. It's... A lot of fun. I've made so many friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I can't point to one experience specifically, but we do have uh, something called our Kickback Friday events. And essentially, it's we can go, like Nicole said, we can go to a corn maze. I forgot which farm that or what cider mill that was. Something John. Uncle John's. Come on, guys. John. <laughs> Uncle John's. Yeah. Uncle, Uncle John's. John's. Yeah. There we go. Um, so we go to different places. Maybe you know that's off campus, but even on campus, you know, we can go to the union and go bowling. Or um, sometimes we have fundraisers at Blaze Pizza, and really we have all these events where people, you know, we we've had movie night too, and we watched. Um, the night before Christmas. Thank you for answering that right away yeah. because I was not gonna, I was just gonna pause and yeah. just wait. Thank you. Um, so yeah, all of the all of these different events, I've definitely been the best experiences because it's what's great is that it connects the people that are in one group session with another group session because those people don't even know each other. So these Kickback Friday events are a great way for the entire support network to actually get connected. And personally, I just had a great time there. Just having a really good time. Side note, Kickback Fridays aren't always on Fridays. <laughs> Super confusing. But they're scattered throughout the week. So you mentioned they have different groups. I'm assuming they meet at different times. Mm -hmm. Do you have a list of those times that we could talk about or share with others? Yeah, I, th I think I know it all offhand. <laughs> um, so on Mondays, we have one group that's, is it 6 to 7 or 7 to 8? get six to seven we'll call it six to seven and tuesdays we don't have our um we don't have anything and then wednesdays we have a six to seven and a seven to eight and then same thing with thursdays we also have a six to seven and a seven to eight and those are all led by just two student facilitators and where are these located these are all in wells hall so either room 208 or something like that we'll let you know <laughs> they're on our website too so that's a good place to go check it out. And these are subjects to change each semester. So it's not necessarily going to always be six to seven on Monday, but it just depends how many people we get. And you base you choose which group you want to be in based on your schedule. So that's really nice. But yeah, for the upcoming future, you definitely could expect that these group sessions go between the times of five to eight during the week, um, Monday through Monday through Thursday. Awesome. And you mentioned you have a lot of events and fundraising times as well. Do you want to talk about what you guys have coming up? We actually have a Blaze <laughs> fundraiser coming up on March 12th since 6.30 to 9.30. It's the one off Grand River, so you don't have to walk very far. And we're also going to be going ice skating sometime in March to be determined. And we'll also be going to bubble tea to be tea be determined just for fun. Um, but we do a lot of events sporadically on campus, you know, last minute. Like, hey, let's all go to open mic night. Like, super fun. And also, um, starting in March, April time, we'll be starting study sessions um, two times a month. So we're just going to have a group or a room in the union, and a group of us are just going to hang out and study. So 
That was a big time to hang out, chill, talk to people. Get work done, Hopefully. theoretically. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. We know how study sessions go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but do you have events that help pr- promote or support mental health? Yeah. Last, last semester, as part of Mental Health Awareness Week, I was on the planning committee for that with ASMSU. And Spartan Support Network worked with ASMSU to bring a keynote speaker sort of comedian one-man show thing <laughs> on Friday night. So he came and he did, you know, did his show about mental health and then he did like an educational session at the end and it was really good. That's awesome. So how do you see your group and everyone else that you work with supporting in the MSU community as well as your volunteers besides just being that diverse group that is there for you? I think just in general, just overall just the connections that we, we, we focus on. Um, we really try to make sure that all of our leaders that um, we do interview for and we once we can quote unquote hire them, we make sure that they're they're pers- you know, they have a personable way of interacting with people and genuinely caring for the people that they're talking with. So, um, you know, I can't point to a specific uh, reason of how we can you know solve that, but definitely just focusing on the interpersonal relationships and just really just the you know the genuine friendships that we make is really just a focus of ours. Mm-hmm. And just sort of creating a culture on campus of being open with your mental health. So if there are students or anyone else that is involved, how do they contact you? You can contact us through our Facebook. Um, there's actually a sign up button you can click right on the Facebook page. If you have questions, all our information is on our Facebook. It's also on our website, which is just SpartanSupportNetwork.com. Dot org. Dot org. <laughs> Oops. Uh, and also we have an Instagram, which you can just message and we can get back to you about any questions anyone has. That's awesome. So how do you see, is there any way that Impact or other student organizations can help you guys? I mean, this interview is great, <laughs> for yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean, is any way that just any type of marketing slash PR, just getting our name out there is really what we're trying to do, just because, you know, we are only a year and a half old, and it has been very difficult to get our name out there and get people familiar with what we are. But above that, you know, even the people that know who we are, they don't even know what to expect. Um, and one thing we actually have done in the past and we're looking into doing in the future is having a, an open group session, which is at the union, um, so people can come into a room, and we would post this these details on our website and our social media when it comes time to. Um, but essentially, it's like a almost like a way for people to come in and learn about what group session is like, so they can ask any questions, and there's no commitment. You know, they can come in for a second, talk to any of us who would be in the room, and just we'd be able to explain what you can expect from a group session and what it takes to become a leader, and then further on a director. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi everyone, welcome to Exposure. I'm your host Stephanie and today I have the opportunity to talk to some people from Blueprints of Pangea. They are a nonprofit that helps deliver medical supplies to other people. Hi guys, welcome. Hi. Hi. Thank you for taking some time to come in. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, so do you guys want to talk about like who you are and what you guys do for Blueprints of Pangea? You want to start and then we'll work. Yeah. So I'm Sam. I'm a microbiome major and I'm the VP of PR. Yeah, I'm Nicole. I'm a zoology pre-vet major and I am a supply inventory executive. I'm uh, Joe. I'm a neuroscience major, uh, senior, and VP of medical outreach. Awesome. So what drew you guys to Blueprints of Pangea and how did you guys get involved? Um, so we're relatively new, um, like two, mm-hmm. two or three years. Uh, I got involved last year, um, and what drew me towards it was just mainly the goal. 
um, because I think the goal was um, it was it was a good way to help um, in in a field that I'm interested in going into, obviously um, being pre med, um, and then. Uh, yeah, it was just a good way to get exposure to to different things that um, would help uh, bring along my field. Yeah, and I really liked um, like the conservation aspect of it too as well since we're taking medical supplies that will be thrown out anyways. So kind of saving that from landfills and then totally repurposing it to make it really useful again and helping people that are truly in need. It just seemed really cool to me. Yeah, I was drawn to the club with similar interests as they are. Plus, I didn't realize how many medical supplies actually were wasted. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they can be sent and help other people, I thought that was really cool. That's awesome. So a lot of people don't really know what Blueprints of Pangea is. So do you guys want to briefly like explain exactly what you guys do in the process you guys go through to get, you know, receive all these medical supplies and then eventually send them out? Yeah, so... Um, for like the supply inventory part of it is that we actually go um, right now we are partnered with McLaren and we go there uh, biweekly and we take supplies directly from them and then we keep them in our warehouse in Lansing. And then about like one sem semester or so we ship them out um, to our um, U of M chapter and we meet up with our Wayne chapter as well. And then we ship them all out uh, to Project Cure and they take them overseas for us. That's awesome. Do you guys get to help choose where overseas you send the medical supplies, or is that up to your partners? So that's mainly up to Project Cure. Um, we're just responsible for sending them what we collect, um, and then they do with it um, what they can. Absolutely. So how do you guys work to collect all of these supplies? I feel like that's got to be a pretty difficult task. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, physically, it kind of, we try and get as many cars we can go out mm -hmm. and just pack everything up. And then um, inventorying is kind of a bigger job where we have to count up all, every oh single God. last yeah. supply. <laughs> yeah. uh, definitely as many, like, people and bodies we can get out there helps with the whole process. Right. Um, we've managed to really streamline it, though, yeah. Um, yeah. over the past, like, two months or so. Definitely a lot faster than the beginning of the semester. So I've, I'm really proud of us for that. Um yeah, so we're kind of just like getting a lot more streamlined in the process of how we collect everything, how we just manage it and tally it up and everything. Absolutely. So where do you guys get these supplies from? Do you have partners around the Lansing area? How does that work? Yeah, so we've been trying to part partner with as many uh, local hospitals as we can. Mm -hmm. um, and so far we have a great partnership with McLaren, um, and we're working on currently a partnership with Sparrow. Um, and if we can get that, that'd be huge because Sparrow is such a big hospital. Um, and, yeah, we're looking to expand uh, even to smaller clinics, health clinics, anywhere really that has supplies that they're not going to be using. Yeah. But what are some of the challenges? I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily, like, how do you convince these medical clinics to give you their supplies? Yeah. Um, so it can be difficult to convince, like, a huge hospital like McLaren to trust a bunch of college students with <laughs> mm -hmm. um, hundreds of medical supplies. But um, really, when we go in and sit them down and, and have them listen to our main goal, um, which is which is a good effort, um, it's a good cause. Um, it's it's not that difficult um, because they're they're on board with helping as 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 uh, well as they can to the best of their ability. Um, so it's not as difficult as as it seems. And I think we're trying to get our message out more so more people like know about our club. Mm -hmm. So medical supplies is pretty broad. What exactly do you guys collect and what is the impact of that? Um, it can be pretty much absolutely anything from like gloves, needles, syringes, catheters. Um, yeah, to more like oh, what equipment. Did, yeah, what did we just get? The, a uh, defibrillator, defibrillator yeah, yeah, which yeah. was kind of crazy and <laughs> awesome cool. that we yeah. managed to get that. So... Um, Basically anything under the broad medical yeah. supply term that, that you can think of. That's not going to be used. Yes. Um, yeah. It's very important. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. How do these things, like, not get used? I feel like they would get used. So right. how does that yeah. just not happen? Um, I just think that a lot of these hospitals, um, the problem is they, they collect more than they need just to, in, in any case of emergency or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, so they do end up with quite a lot of uh, excess material. Um, so it's, yeah, I'm not too surprised that they get all these materials because they're, they're such a huge hospital and they, they do play a big part in, in health as far as it, as Lansing goes. 
Um, so yeah, I'm not too surprised with the amount of supplies they have. Yeah, yeah. and also like Joe said, they just kind of order so much, but um, they they all have like expiration dates on them. So once the expiration dates hit, I don't think that they can like legally use them mm. anymore. Yeah. Right. So which comes in really handy for us because for many like third world countries, expired supply is much better than nothing at all. Yeah. Absolutely. Again, for our listeners, this is WDBM East Lansing. We are on exposure here with the blueprints of Pangea. So we talked about expiration dates. Is that diminish the quality of products at all, or is it just like we're helping in any way possible? It doesn't necessarily like diminish quality so much that they can't be used mm-hmm. again, but I think there's just kind of standards like here in our country that necessarily we just kind of like have – we have to set, um, but they're still, like, useful. Yeah, I do think we definitely have a lot of rules here in the United States. Yeah. So yeah. it's just and, lots of standards. Yeah, and, and Project Cure does a good job of telling us what we can use and what we can't yes. use. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've been really helpful in the whole process of um, us finding supplies, um, figuring out whether we can use them and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. So what is one of the biggest things you guys have learned being a part of this group? I think for me, it's just how much waste we create, yeah. kind of like, I almost can't believe how much supplies we get, yeah. and yeah, yeah, it's kind of crazy. And I didn't know there are organizations that did this, like Project Cure yeah. has been around for a yeah. while. Mm-hmm. Um, just how big of an impact you can make in such a small organization, because I think yes. we only have like 20 members, we don't even have that many members. Um mm-hmm. But yet we're shipping out such large amounts of medical supplies that uh, can do some good. Um, so that's been really inspiring throughout all this, I think. Yeah. And then what skills do you think you guys have u- learned and then are able to use, hopefully, in a future career from this group? Um, packing boxes is really difficult. So we usually do collections at Friday at 8 in the morning. Um, and when we collect them from the hospitals, we go to our warehouse and we'll have to unpack those supplies, figuring how, figuring out how to put those supplies in, in an effective manner (laughs) is the most frustrating thing. Um, just to have to play Tetris within stuff like that. So it's good to have a packaging major on hand. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Well, you need anyone to move anything. We'll make sure to contact you guys. (laughs) You've learned, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I think I learned like. People working, like, working with people skills, too, and just how many, like, people it really takes to get things done. And that if we all work together, it's not as much Mm -hmm. responsibility. I definitely think that's something we can take for granted. You know, we just see all these things just magically get done, and we Mm -hmm. don't think, oh, that's not that much work. But there's many jobs and many people behind the scenes that I think others often forget about. Yeah, for sure. Again, this is WDBM East Lansing. We're here on Exposure with... People from the blueprints of Pangea. So, you guys do anything besides just the packaging and collecting materials? Do you guys have fun events that you guys do to help get to know each other better? Or yeah, um, so this two weekends ago was the Michigan thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So two weekends ago we went to U of M um, uh, to package our supplies uh, and ship them out to Project Cure, and we had to be at U of M at like. Six in the morning, was it? Yes, we had to um, leave at four and, thirty. <laughs> yeah, so we had to wake up at four thirty, and the car ride though was pretty fun. Um, we try to keep it uh, as fun as possible because um, a lot of the events that we do, um, when it comes to packaging, can be a little boring um, and tiresome. But we try to keep it as fun and fresh um, with just a lot of team bonding exercises, um, such as the car ride up to U, U of M, um, and uh, a lot of our club, club meetings. We'll have pizza. Um, movies, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, we try to keep it fun, but while um, keeping that good um, good task uh, alive, yeah. For sure. It's definitely important to keep, you know, the goal at mind, but also have some fun while you're doing it. Yeah. So what are some of your favorite memories from being a part of Blueprints of Pangea? One of my favorite memories was the 5K that we hosted in the fall. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The weather was awful but (laughs) it was so fun seeing everyone dressed up and they like all enjoyed the race and everything just like worked out and you were that's when we really saw like all our work paid off yeah yeah definitely i don't know what about you guys um yeah that was definitely a big one oh we had um 
Oh my gosh, what did we do? We had like a, what was the competition called? Like a spaghetti and like oh. marshmallow. <laughs> so, so one of our club meetings, we had a spaghetti marshmallow contest um, where you would see who can stack the most uh, spaghetti and marshmallows up highest. Um, that was pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, we won. Uh, my group okay. won. <laughs> All right. Well, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, like I said, it's just, it's a part of keeping it fun um, and getting people interested while keeping the goal in mind. Yeah, definitely. All right. So are there some fun events that people can go to or help, ways that we can help support you coming up here? Um, yeah, so our last meeting is coming up on April 9th. Yeah. Um, so if you're interested, definitely come come to that. There will be pizza. Um, we're thinking of even putting on a movie. Um, but in terms of events that, um, you know, to get involved in, um, that will be mostly taking place uh, next fall. Um, so definitely look out for us. You can follow us on Instagram. That would be a big help to keep, uh, to keep up with us. Mm -hmm. um, anything else? Facebook. Facebook. Facebook yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Just watch out for our 5K. Yeah, yeah. Like 5K October. is in October. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's really fun. Awesome. For those that are interested in learning more about your organization, again, check out their website and social media and all kinds of good stuff there. But if there are community members that want to help bring medical supplies to you guys or help with the process, how can they help you guys? Um, so they can probably contact um, one of us direct via, um, via our Instagram, yeah. probably. Or email. Email. Yeah, um, yeah we, we do take, um, if you have any supplies that are at home or from a local clinic, definitely send it to us, email us, um, and that'd be helpful. And the most common supplies you guys look for are? Um, anything. Honestly, think, anything. Yeah. yeah, we truly, like, ship out anything that Project Cure, like, will deem, like, yeah, usable. It has to obviously yeah. be, it can't be opened. Yes. Um, yeah, but as long as it's not opened or, or damaged, then we'll take it. Can I have an example? So if I was like wandering around my house today and I'd be like, well, this is something that could be used, what would be? Um, I mean, I feel like honestly, like, even in my house, like, oh, my parents are weird. They have like boxes of like disposable <laughs> gloves that like I know like yeah, my yeah. dad buys yeah. them. We won't use them like yeah. that yeah. kind of thing. Or even um, I'm not sure how well this would be but if you have like insulin like syringes, like mm. things like that, that you if, I don't, I'm not sure if they like expire, but those kinds mm. of things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's kind of like common household items like yeah. that yeah awesome well it's definitely important that you guys are doing this work and i'm glad that there are people out there and that students can get involved with it are there any other ways that we can help support you as a, whether it's a station or just the student body in general that we can think of i think just join our club and yeah. try to help <laughs> us with yeah, yeah, supply join. inventory yeah. Yeah. yeah um yeah we're, we're relatively new um so the amount of members that we have now is to be expected. Um, but we definitely want to grow um, because I think we're in a position where we're set up to succeed. So I think having more members would definitely uh, help that. Yeah, that does touch on the future. So what are some of your major goals for the future? Ooh, Sparrow. Yes, Sparrow we definitely want sure. to partner with we more hospitals. Yeah. yeah, Sparrow for yeah. sure. Which That's... I think having more members would help that, like yeah. show that we are mm -hmm. an Legitimate. established club. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That yeah, would you be able to reach two clinics, like, in all of Lansing or, like, a little bit outside of Lansing, maybe even, like, mid-Michigan area, or is that um, so too far? Right now, um, we only have, like, two members who have cars. Yeah. Um, so it's even <laughs> difficult getting to some of the closer hospitals. Mm -hmm. So I think for the time being, keeping it within uh, closer Lansing would be best. Um, but expanding in the future is definitely in the plans. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Well, again, you guys, if you're interested, anyone that is listening, Blueprints at Pangea, they collect a bunch of medical supplies, which they send on to Cure, which is then sent on to other countries to help them there. So if you're interested, please contact them via their social media or Facebook or their email, which is b4pmsu at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for taking some time to talk to us. It's wonderful to learn that there are students doing some really good work. Thank yeah, you. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. And we're here interviewing Kate. Kate, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? 
Sure. Um, my name is Kate Wieringa. I am a graduate student at Michigan State. I'm getting my PhD, um, and I'm in my third year. Uh, I am in the biochemistry and molecular biology department, um, and I'm actually working in a food science lab uh, in the lab of Dr. Jim Pesca. That's awesome. What research do you do? Uh, well, our lab is interested in, um, it, we study autoimmunity, and we're interested in the environmental uh, factors that can promote autoimmune disease. And we also are interested in how different dietary interventions or changing things you eat can block the development of autoimmune disease. Could you describe what an autoimmune disease is from the first place? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so <clears throat> all of us have an immune system, and our immune system is really important in protecting our body against any sort of uh, foreign invader, basically. So like if, if uh, bacteria gets in your body that isn't supposed to be there, your immune system recognizes it as something foreign, foreign um, and it's able to uh, get rid of it, basically. Um, but sometimes uh, some people have different problems with their immune system where their immune system actually recognizes their own body as the foreign invader. And so then their immune system starts to attack the person's own body. Um, so sometimes this is just the immune system attacking a certain type of cell. Um, and other times it's just the host in general. The immune system will try to attack the, the person. How do autoimmune system diseases relate to your research then? Yeah, so our lab is interested in a specific autoimmune disease called lupus. Um, and lupus, um, lupus has been shown to be promoted by different environmental factors. So what our lab studies specifically is a substance called crystalline silica. And it's basically just little teeny tiny particles of dust um, that get kicked up in the air anytime rock or sand is being processed. So like if you're walking past like a construction site and someone is like sawing through a cement block, that like fluffy white powder that gets kicked up into the air is contains crystalline silica. And that's really, really tiny. Um, and so when you inhale it, it can get deposited into your lungs and it can cause a bunch of inflammation. And this can then promote the development of autoimmune diseases. So people have shown that this has been um, potentially a factor that promotes the development of lupus, which is what our lab studies. So we're investigating um, what the mechanisms are that link exposure to this substance, silica, to the development of autoimmune disease. This reminds me a lot of those different asbestos commercials. Yeah, very, very similar. That's exactly what mm -hmm. I was thinking. Yep. Uh, where's the relation there? Well, asbestos is more like a fiber, um, but it's very similar in that it's really tiny and it can get deposited in your lungs. Um, and when your immune cells come in contact with it, they get overactivated because uh, they realize it's bad and they need to get rid of it. And so um, it's very it's very similar. Um, I, I don't know 100% whether asbestos exposure has been linked to autoimmune disease, um, but it certainly has been linked to increased inflammation. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that lupus is caused a lot by inflammation with the silica particles? Are there any other factors that contribute to it? Yeah, so um, lupus is primarily, I mean, it's a genetic disease. So you can be genetically predisposed to it. If you have specific genes, um, you're going to be more likely to develop the disease. But silica can be more like a trigger. So just because you accidentally breathe in a bunch of silica, you're not going to all of a sudden get lupus. But if you're an individual who is um, genetically predisposed to it, like you're more likely to get it. Um, then if you are in a situation where you're in like really high exposure or high uh, contact with silica, um, you could, the silica could potentially trigger the development of the disease. So it's more of a trigger, whereas the genetics are already there to like uh, make you more likely to get the disease. The lupus kind of could push it over the, or sorry, the silica could kind of push the development over the edge. That makes sense. So what have you figured out so far? <laughs> well, our lab, um, we use a, a mouse model that is um, uh, genetically predisposed to get lupus, just like certain individuals are. And so this mouse, um, it will develop lupus-like symptoms um, at around, I mean, this is probably too much detail. This mouse will <laughs> eventually develop lupus-like symptoms as it gets older. Um, but when we expose these mice to silica, they develop lupus much earlier. 
So this kind of mimics like a person who maybe at some point in their life they might develop lupus, but if they're exposed to some sort of environmental factor that promotes it, they might see the development happen earlier in their life. How do you dispose them to the silica? Like, do you put it in the air of their cages or do you inject it or something into them? Um, so we actually just uh, take uh, we take the silica and we suspend it in in a solution. So it's um, it's mixed up in like a liquid solution. And then we just take a tiny drop of it and put it right at the base of their nose. And we have them um, anesthetized. So they're like asleep, basically. And when you put a little tiny drop right on their nose, they just breathe it in and it goes right down into their airways, just like if they had breathed it in, in the air. And do you know how much they're inhaling? Yeah. So we always give them a, a um, consistent dose. So they always get the same amount and we know how much they're getting. Um, but we've chosen the dose they get to mimic what someone would uh, see over the course of a lifetime. So it's a human relevant dose. It's about the same, if you like, make it smaller and put it down into mouse terms. It's about the same as what a person would be exposed to over the course of their whole life. In just one drop? We actually do four different drops. So we do four drops, so uh, a week apart. So it's like four separate exposures, and then all of that combined combined is, um, I guess I should specify, it's more what someone who is in, a jo- in an occupation where they would be exposed to that. So not just one of us, but like if you were a construction worker or a miner, it's supposed to mimic what they would be exposed to. So this has direct implications to how construction sites are managed then and how Mm -hmm. different construction sites are closed down or when buildings need to be demolished. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And there are are limitations and regulations in place. So OSHA is the the company that's – or not company, but they're like the agency that's responsible for um, putting regulations in place. And they have a limit of how much – Silica dust can be in the air and uh, when people need to be wearing masks to protect themselves, things like that. Um, so there are limits out there, which is good. And do you agree with those limits? Do you think that they need to be refined more? They actually, um, I think it was, it was maybe in 2016, it was in the past few years, they, they made it even stricter, which I think was good. Um, so I believe that the what we're exposing the mice to is... Um, would be within the old regulations, and but now I think it would be higher than the new regulations. But there are newer regulations, and I think that they are better than the old ones. They're actually much stricter than the old ones were. I'm wondering, is there any sort of test that people can take whenever they're born that can tell them if they're genetically predisposed to being able to contract lupus from the silica in the air? Um, yeah, well, lupus is, because it's a genetic disease, um, it's hereditary. So if, if someone knew that they have an aunt or maybe they're, uh, oh, it's also more likely in females. So it's much more common in females than in males. So so say you have a, a baby girl and her her aunt or maybe her mom or a few other female family members have lupus, they're pretty likely to be um, more likely to develop the disease themselves. Um, there is a few specific genes that have been identified that are associated with the development of lupus, but it hasn't been like 100% figured out yet that you could just look at one thing and know for sure someone was going to get lupus. It kind of has to be a a handful of different things happening. But for sure, if they have family members that have lupus, they're more likely to get the disease themselves. So why are women more predisposed to contracting lupus in their lifetime? Um, yeah, so that's another thing that people are working on uh, figuring out. It's not 100% known why. So females are about 10 times more likely than males to develop lupus. Um, And it's usually, people usually develop lupus during, uh, like, childbearing years. So you wouldn't see, like, a young, often you don't see, like, a young girl developing lupus or, like, someone that's much, much older developing it late in their life. It's usually right around, like, your childbearing years. So people believe a lot of it is probably linked to different um, hormonal things, uh, more exposure to estrogen, um, things like that. But it's not 100% uh, figured out. And can you remind our listeners what lupus actually is? Yeah. So lupus is an autoimmune disease. Um, it's uh, So again, autoimmune disease is where your own immune system actually begins attacking you, the host. Um, and so lupus specifically, uh, people that have lupus, um, they often, sometimes it will present as like a rash on their skin. It's characterized generally by quite a bit of inflammation. And so this can present as like chronic pain. Um, chronic fatigue, 
Um, ultimately, if, if lupus is left untreated, uh, the kidneys, a lot of the inflammation and, I guess, symptoms um, occur in the kidneys. So if left untreated, ultimately the kidneys will fail. Um, luckily, there are lots of treatments for lupus, um, but there isn't a cure. So lots of people that have lupus are able to manage it, but they still have to live with the, the fatigue, chronic pain joint pain, that kind of thing. And there's just a lot of complications. I remember you were saying that you guys model this through a mouse model mm-hmm. where you put drops of silica by the mice by where they're inhaling so they can inhale it as if humans do. And I'm wondering, do you only look at the lupus symptoms or what else do you see that are going on in these mites that might, mice that might be notable? Yeah. So, um, so again, our lab isn't, uh, we're interested in understanding how those environmental factors like silica are promoting the disease. So we look at um, a lot of the early stages of inflammation that we see following silica exposure um, and then try to link those early inflammatory effects to the downstream lupus response. Um, so when we look in the lungs of the mice, we can see um, after they're exposed to silica, they have lots and lots of uh, additional new inflammation in their lungs. And we think that this is then driving the downstream more um, systemic effects that you see in the whole body are really starting in the lungs after the mice breathe in the silica. Another thing that we look at is how um, dietary interventions can then be used to block this environmental trigger of lupus. Um, and so those same mice that get exposed to the silica are on diets that are really rich in um, omega-3 fatty acids, which is the main fatty acid in fish oil, so in like salmon, oily fish. Um, and we found that this really decreases the inflammation that we see in the mice and then also decreases the development of lupus. What are you guys seeing other than the lungs with inflammation? Because I know that I've heard, well, that inflammation can really affect a lot of organs, especially mm-hmm. like the heart. For example, if your heart is inflamed, you can end up with atherosclerosis and other stuff. Like, mm-hmm. Do you guys look at the other organs in the body or only particularly with the lungs? Well, we focus on the lungs because that's kind of the, the early stages of inflammation. Um, but we also look at other organs too. So because lupus really does primarily affect the kidneys, if left untreated, we look at the kidneys um, and we look for the development of inflammation there. Um, We also look at the liver. Um, We haven't done very much with the heart, but we um, focus, we focus more on liver, spleen, kidney, um, and then of course the lungs. Thank you so much, Kate, for giving us that insight about your research and what your involvement is. Now let's try to get a more comprehensive understanding of who you are. Why did you join this lab and what motivated you to perform this type of research? Um, yeah, so I started grad, when I started grad school, I wanted to be involved um, on a project that had some sort of connection to human, human health, uh, human health and disease. Um, and so when I, when I came across this lab, I really liked the interplay between um, both understanding how environmental factors influence disease and then also how there's actually things that we can do um, like different lifestyle changes, uh, dietary interventions to actually um, basically block the development of uh, environmentally triggered disease. Um, So I've always been really interested in um, nutrition um, and so the idea of really investigating how a dietary intervention can impact things was exciting to me. Um, and that's pretty much it. I just really, I really like, uh, trying to dig apart the mechanisms of, we have like a big, a big picture idea of understanding how a certain factor can impact, uh, downstream effect. But I like trying to pick apart the little steps along the way and understanding what's happening there. What was your motivation to get into science? Like, did you always know that you wanted to look at diseases and human health? Um, not necessarily. For a while, I wanted to go to medical school um, when I was an undergrad. And I primarily wanted to go to medical school because I was interested in, um, you know, health and how the body functions and how all those little parts work together. Um, And then when I was a junior in college, I did about a, uh, I did a research 
internship and I did about a year working in a um, chemistry lab. And uh, I really enjoyed the research side of it. It wasn't super uh, translation, like directly translational to human research or to human health. Um, but I just enjoyed the process of having a problem and trying to figure out what's the best way to approach this problem. And then once you get some data back, figure out how that fits into um, your original hypothesis, all of that. Um, so I figured out then that I liked research. And so I knew I wanted to go to grad school to really use research to try to answer some of the the questions that I was really interested in. So we talked about what got you into science. Mm -hmm. What are your plans for once you're finished with your doctoral degree? Oh, that's the million dollar question. I really have no, I have a few different ideas. Um, So there's a lot of, when I originally came in, I, I uh, wanted to teach. So I just wanted, I went to a small liberal arts college and I really liked um, just the very um, close knit feel of it. Um, so I, I've always loved working with students. Like I've TA'd, I TA'd some in undergrad and I've TA'd some in grad school and I really like, um, teaching and working with students. Um, so I definitely think that wherever my, uh, future career goes, there will be some aspect of teaching involved in it. Um, but, uh, I am interested in potentially pursuing more of a research intensive position rather than strictly teaching. So, Um, But I think whatever happens, I probably will remain in academia. I really like the academic uh, realm. I was wondering, though, I want to know more about you, like more than just a scientist. Like, Mm -hmm. what do you do for fun? Oh, uh, let's see. So when I'm not in the lab, (laughs) um, I like to go running. So um, my husband runs, too. So one thing that we'll do for fun is sign up for a race in a cool new place and then kind of make a weekend out of it and see somewhere new and also, um, you know, accomplish a a new goal of running a new race. So, yeah. What average distance do you run? Um, So I run a couple, I've run a couple marathons, which is, it's really hard to train for in grad school, but um, (laughs) it was, those were like some bucket list items, but I really probably my preference would be the half marathon because that's, a little bit more manageable. It's just enough running to keep me sane in graduate school without like tipping me over the edge of having to run all the time. And out of all the different races that you've ran, what was your favorite race location? Oh man, that's hard. Um, I've got, there's been a lot that I really liked. Probably my, my favorite one would be, I ran a half marathon in Marquette, Michigan um, in August, which is a wonderful time to be up in Marquette. And so, um, that was super fun. Well, hopefully you didn't catch any uh, silica in while you were running and inhaling. Right, by all the that. mining and stuff up there? Yeah, no, I think we were okay. I ate a lot of fish oil to counteract it. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yes. You just mentioned that you consumed fish oil for your health and whatnot. I was wondering, could you go more into how fish oil works with your research? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, um, so with that... Uh, lupus mouse model that I was talking about earlier, um, a really interesting thing that we found is that if the animals are fed diets that are rich in fish oil, um, then that actually blocks uh, the silica-triggered development of autoimmune disease. So um, again, I'll just go back to the animal model. Um, These animals, they will eventually develop autoimmune disease on their own, but when they're exposed to silica, it happens a lot earlier in their life. However, if the animals are on diets that are rich in um, fish oil, then the development of lupus is actually pushed back to about what we would see in the animals that weren't exposed to any silica to begin with. So DHA is basically blocking um, whatever silica is doing to trigger development of the disease. You mentioned DHA. What is that? Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. So DHA is a, it's a fatty acid. Um, And it's a major component of fish oil. So often I'll use fish oil and DHA interchangeably, which um, is not exactly correct. But DHA makes up a big part of fish oil. So it's one of the main oils in fish oil. Mm -hmm. So from what I'm understanding then is that if a person was working at a construction site and was exposed to these different silica particles, they could take fish oil to help counteract the negative effects that the silica would have had on their body to prevent lupus from occurring earlier. 
Yes, exactly. That's really what we're trying to understand is um, we've shown in these animals that fish oil can potentially block the bad effects that we see with silica. Um, And so now we're really trying to unravel what exactly is it about the fish oil that is um, doing that. Uh, So there's a a handful of studies that have shown that fish oil is anti-inflammatory, and so they've used it in other inflammatory and autoimmune diseases to um, improve disease condition. And so we're just trying to do that in lupus and in this exposure-triggered model for lupus. Is it the vitamins or something in the fish oil? Like, do you guys know what exactly does that? Because I know that not only fish oil is anti-inflammatory, like turmeric is as well. Like, why did you guys particularly pick fish oil? Yeah, so fish oil, um, I mentioned DHA earlier, and that's one of the main fatty acids in fish oil. Um, DHA is an omega-3 fatty acid, and the omega-3 fatty acids specifically are what we're um, investigating. So the omega-3 fatty acids have been shown to be um, anti-inflammatory and help to block some of those um, inflammatory diseases. Is there a particular type of fish oil that you guys look at? I know that there's krill oil and certain things like that. Is there a specific fish that you guys think is better than others? Yeah, so um, we actually use purified DHA. So we, instead of using like the word for it is crude fish oil, which would just be the whole, all of the fish oil, um, we purify it, we have it purified down to DHA. So we're really just specifically looking at the omega-3 fatty acids instead of the other things in the fish oil. Um, but really any, um, any, I guess, mixture of fish oil that has a lot of EPA, which is another omega-3 fatty acid, and DHA is um, would be the best. From what I'm gathering, you're saying that fish oil would help prevent this. And you're saying that the silica is consumed in construction sites. So why can't people just wear dust masks or something like that? Is there other ways that people can consume the silica other than at these construction sites? Yeah, so um, a lot of people do wear the masks. But, I mean, sometimes you're exposed to things not maybe you're just you know walking past or if you live in a very industrial area um, where there's a lot of construction going on you don't necessarily have to be the one you know right there but this stuff it's really small and fine and it can get picked up and blown you know downwind to someone not on the construction site so um, depending on um, where a person lives or maybe they're kind of you know accidentally exposed to it um, you can't always prevent it. How much DHA do you provide with your mice before you start to see a significant effect in whether or not they contract lupus or not? The mice are all given the same dose of silica. Um, And then, again, that that is about relatable to what someone would be exposed to over a lifetime of working, like a construction-type job. Um, And then all the mice, the mice are given two different doses of DHA, so... We either give them um, enough that would be equivalent to about 2 grams per day for a human or equivalent to about 5 grams per day for a human. So we have our low dose, which is 2, and our high dose is 5. And the 2 grams per day, you could conceivably obtain that much if you took um, fish oil supplementation. So you can buy fish oil pills from, like, Costco or Meijer, really anywhere. Um, And if you take think is about two or three times like what they say is a dose that would be about two grams so it's a little bit more than what most people are probably actually taking even if they take fish oil supplements but it is attainable or achievable if you really go for it <laughs> and we do see some good effects at the two gram per day dose so our low dose um the five gram per day dose is where we see things are almost completely blocked as far as development of the disease goes but even at the two gram per day dose the mice have much less severe um, disease than the ones that don't get any DHA at all. I'm curious, are there any other things that people should be worried about, about how they can contract lupus other than from genetic predisposition or from the silica in the air? Um, Yeah, there's a variety of different potential exposures that have been linked to the development of lupus. Um, I I can't, I don't necessarily know them all off the top of my head, um, but there are different things that people can be exposed to that can um, promote it. So so if a person is genetically predisposed to it and they know like their mom has lupus or their grandma or their aunt, um, then I think it would be 
probably a good idea to at least be aware of what type of things could promote development of the disease. Does being genetically predisposed to lupus make you predisposed to other things? Yeah, actually, um, a lot of times people that have lupus um, have other autoimmune diseases in addition to lupus. I don't uh, know the exact number off the top of my head, but it's not uncommon for someone to have lupus as well as another autoimmune disease. Um, and a lot of this is because kind of the, I guess, um, basis behind these autoimmune diseases is just kind of a greater propensity towards increased inflammation. Um, and just if, you're, if your immune system is already a little confused as to what's the host versus what's a foreign invader, it would kind of make sense that you could have multiple autoimmune diseases going on at one time. Thank you so much, Kate, for sitting down to talk with both Chelsea and I about your incredible research. Now, is there any last lasting advice that you would give to any of our listeners that might be interested in science but are not sure whether or not they want to go ahead and study it? Yeah, um, I think if you... I think if you're interested, you should at least try it. That's one thing that I wish I had done more as certainly as an undergraduate is I wish I had earlier on in my career at least tried out some sort of research position. So I kind of had my mind set on one thing and I thought, oh, I'm not going to want to do research. And then when I did have a little bit of experience with research, I loved it. And so I think if that had been something I'd been exposed to um, younger, I would have known much earlier on that I wanted to end up doing research. So I would say just put yourself in a position where you can actually um, have a chance to try something, try something new and you might actually really like it. Thanks a lot for sharing your research with us, Kate. Catch us next time here at Sci-Files on Impact 89FM. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to sci-files at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on Sci-Files.